0: Take off your shoes, said God to Moses, because you're standing on holy ground. Take off your shoes. You're probably watching this at home. You might as well get comfy. I'm going to take my shoes off. And uh, what God said to Moses, I think, applies to all of us, because we all are standing or sitting on holy ground where God is present. That makes it holy, right? So... Take off your shoes for a little while. You're on holy ground. We'll come back to that. First, a little story from my early days. I think as kids, you tend, to, you tend to remember things that are emotionally discordant with how things normally are. Those really make an impression on you. And then what really makes an impression on you is if it turns out differently than, than you might have anticipated. I have one such story from my growing up years. This is probably about 1970 and probably about 12. I uh, remember my family ran a shoe store growing up, and so I'm I'm like the salesperson of last resort in our shoe store at that time. <laughs> you know, all the professional salespeople would wait on somebody. If it got super busy, then I would wait on somebody. This, of course, is also the days uh, in which salespeople waited on people at a shoe store. You, it's not like Rogan's nowadays or Kohl's where the inventory's all out there and you do your own kind of uh, fitting and trying on of things. In in this world, you'd you'd look inside the display windows outside. You'd you'd literally go window shopping, and then if you liked a shoe, you'd come in, you'd sit down, salesperson would wait on you and bring out shoes that you wanted to look at and try on. Totally different world. It was about to end within a couple of years, but it still exists at the time of this story. So if you could imagine walking into the store that we ran, the women's shoes were on the left, men's on the right, the children's in back, and then more inventory in a back room and in the basement. Most of it women's shoes. We then, and I I think still now, sold a lot more women's shoes than men's shoes is how it goes. So one day, everybody else is busy except my dad and I, and and a mom comes in with her kid at this time of the year uh, for back-to-school shoes. And they sit down, this kid's maybe six years old, and my dad waits on them. And at some point he says to the, says to the, to the boy, uh, well, son, why don't you take off your shoes? No, I don't want to take off my shoes. Now, my dad was a, was a gentleman and a super gentle person and few things pushed his buttons, but I could tell emotionally that that pushed his buttons a little bit, but they hang in there, they work with it. Dad brings out a couple of shoes that he thinks they'll like. Uh, gets it down to like two and then says to the mom, not to the kid, but back then kids were seen and not heard, says to the mom, well, which one do you think is better? And and then she surprises my dad by sort of dismissing that and turning to her son and saying, well, which one do you like better? I don't like any of them, said the kid. Now, I can tell this is really pushing my dad's buttons because at that point he gets up from the, the little fitting Sully he was sitting on and he goes to that back room. Now, when you'd walk into that back room, for one thing, it would be a blue uh, fog back there because all the salespeople smoked and how it would always go is they'd light up a cigarette and then a customer would come in and they'd put the cigarette down in the ashtray and the whole thing would burn up in the ashtray while they were waiting on the customer. All of those salespeople lived into their 80s and 90s. None of them died of lung cancer because even though they lit cigarettes all the time, they never smoked them, but it was a blue fog in this back room. And I can tell my dad is is off, and, and I also know that when my dad is off in a situation like this, he's probably going to swear up a storm just under his breath in this back room. And I go back to kind of see how that's all going. I get back there, and he's totally silent. He's just kind of looking at the wall, looking at the inventory. And then he pulls out a couple of boxes, because there are some additional kid shoes back there as well. And And he doesn't say anything to me. He doesn't look at me either. And then the last thing he does before he goes back out there is we have this box of, like, little toys and gifts for kids. He pulls out a balloon, and he goes out there, and he blows up that balloon, which has, like, some dog or something on it. and, And he hands it to this little kid, and it's like the cat's meow. This kid couldn't have been happier to get this balloon, and then everything works itself out. Take off your shoes. No, I don't want to. I do sometimes wonder if that is the universal human response to God trying to guide us and instruct us and ask things of us. No, I don't want to do that. And then I wonder, not to over-deify my dad, but I do wonder if, if, if God hasn't perfected the art of taking a deep breath, and just going to that smoke filter room the back for a little bit while watching our rebellion or our ignorance or our resistance And then just taking a totally different tack, one that we didn't even expect, but which is invitational to each and every one of us. I think there is some truth to that, so let's talk a little bit today about the ways in which we push God away and resist God, and in the ways in which God kind of keeps coming back to us time after time. And we're just going to use the two lessons that Nancy read, and I'm just going to pick out individual phrases and and verses, Uh, There are hours of of things that we could learn from these stories, but let's just pick a couple of things. So we'll take it from the the top. We'll start with the Exodus chapter 3 reading. And the very first verse verse is what? That Moses was watching over the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, who was the priest of Midian. There's a lot to learn from that verse about our faith tradition. Because the fact that Jethro was the priest of Midian means he's not Jewish and that that's okay. In other words, from the very beginning, our our tradition respects people in other places, and it includes people from other places because, as it turns out, they frequently include us as well as Jethro had included Moses. Our tradition is one that includes and that respects. It's a great and powerful tradition to be of. Moses was taking care of the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, who was the priest of Midian. Verse 1, Exodus chapter 3. Jump down then to verse 7 in Exodus chapter 3, um, where God says to Moses, I have heard the cry of of my people, uh, Israel, and their misery. Uh, God notices slavery. God notices injustice and discrimination and prejudices. There is a a significant part of the Christian tradition that doesn't, that at some level says faith is is only an inner thing, a spiritual thing. It has no, in a sense, societal or or corporate, in a sense, uh, implications. And they actually uh, resist that and would say, you know, that's political, that's social, that's that's, that's, uh, not what we should be about as Christians. I never get that because all of the core stories in, in Scripture are the exact reverse of that, that they're so aware of, of how we are part of these groups that are bigger than ourselves, and that groups uh, can do amazing things in the Spirit, but they can also do tremendously harmful things, sometimes not even intentionally, just because of habit or neglect. Uh, but that God notices the oppression of his people around the world and seeks to change it, but that only happens when other good people are aware of it and, and, and work against the various prejudices and oppressions of our world. This is who we are, it's who we are from the very beginning. Thanks be to God for verse 7 and, and God's notation to Moses, Moses, I have seen the misery of my people. Jump down to verse 11. Um, God has now called Moses, excuse me, to go back and and confront Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. And verse 11 begins, but Moses said to God, but, what a great word, right? But Moses said to God. Moses responded to God's uh, request to go back to Egypt uh, as if there was somebody else who could do it. There wasn't anybody else who could do it. Who else had been, who else knew that they came from slaves but had been raised in the house of Pharaoh? The only person in the world who could do this was going to be Moses. And so God says, you know, you got to go, you got to talk to Pharaoh. And and so then Moses in chapters 3 and 4 of Exodus comes up with not one, not two, not three, but four different excuses for why he shouldn't go back. The first one just being, well, uh, what am I actually going to say? And then who am I? Who, who sent me? That's where we get the name of God. Uh, I'm not a good public speaker. And then finally, I, I just don't want to do it, God. And, and each time it's like God goes to the smoky room and back and takes a deep breath, <sighs> chokes a little bit, pulls out a balloon, and comes back on. God persistently keeps asking, and God also patiently listens to Moses's varied and many excuses. We, I suspect, all do this. You may think you don't do this, but then you should probably think about that because we probably all do. We excuse, if, if not to God, we certainly all excuse our own actions or rationalize our mistakes or our biases or our neglects, whatever they may be. And, and God patiently just keeps saying, you sure you want to say that? You sure you want to believe that? You, you sure you want to stay in that place? What's the answer to those questions? That's what we all have to work on as people of God. So leave the leave the Moses story. Go to Paul, writing to the believers in Rome. What a difficult letter to write because he's writing into an environment where people are already suspicious of him and of Christianity. And yet he, he talks about the hardest of things in, in the book of Romans. Uh, and, and in the middle of all of that, we, we get to, to, to verse nine, and, and it's so cool what what uh, what, Moses, what Paul is aware of, and and one of the things he's aware of in, in verse nine is, don't be haughty, don't be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Um, what might that mean for for us? I think one way that could apply for all of us is is you know depending on where you live, it's not immediately possible to, to hang out with what our society defines as the lowly because that, that might involve a, a housing thing, it might involve an income level thing, it might involve an education level thing. So here's how I think it can kind of work. I, I think, I don't know if this is statistically correct, but I think it would generally be true that if you're hanging out with a group of 10, 15, 20 people, uh, for sure one or more of those people is is dealing with an addiction for sure one or more of those people has been abused in some way in their life for sure one or more of those people um, is is the wrong skin color they're the wrong age or um, no one's ever appreciated um, their particular skills and in fact they've always been the they've always been you know the Disregarded because they aren't smart enough, or they um, they aren't cute enough, or and all the things that we we do to push each other away. And, and in other words, um, the lowly are are everywhere. And and what so often makes anyone lowly is is just that they keep it in, and that that's hard to get by. Um, people hide a lot of stuff. But but the other thing is that nobody even tries to notice and and that's how we just kind of keep walking past each other in life um, and and we do kind of excuse ourselves from caring sometimes when jesus says associate with those who are lowly that could be a lot of different things but for sure you will not associate with lowly with the lowly if you if you only uh, keep your circle the same the push of our life of faith is to constantly expand your circles, uh, who you hang out with, uh, where you choose to be, um, how you choose to, to best invest your time. And, and when that's with continually different people inside church and out, uh, in all sorts of aspects of your lives, then, then you're around people and you have the opportunity to perhaps notice them and then walk beside them. That's how we walk with each other. That's how we. And then, and then, finally, um, the very last thing Paul says is, is, "Don't don't be overcome by evil; overcome evil with good." That echoes everything Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, and is our most powerful tool, honestly, as Christians, and also our most ignored tool, because over the course of two thousand years of Christian history, we've constantly, in different ways not used good to overcome evil, so often Christianity itself has been impositional, imposed rather than invitational. How does that sort of thing change? Well, it's because we recognize that evil is not overcome by more evil. It's overcome by the power of good in our lives. As you walk through life in the next couple of days, remember all the verses we just talked about. Jethro was the priest of Midian. Ours is a, is a tradition that respects and includes. I have seen the suffering of my people. God is aware of our hurt within us and beyond us and longs for it to change. But, Moses said to God, we, although we are part of the change and God entrusts us with it, we come up with our excuses, which are many and varied. But the way you overcome that is to associate with the lowly." Just means make your circles bigger instead of smaller. Notice the people who cross your paths, whether you know them super well or you've just met them for the first time. And finally, recognize the power of good in your life and in God to overcome the many hurts and evils within and beyond. Jesus echoes what Moses long ago heard take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground, which is why it is so easy for him. To look at us, and in many of his parables, say to you and I, You, yes, you are good soil. Done. And I guess you could put your shoes back.